0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. One morning after breakfast, Meg was finishing washing the dishes when she beheld the most terrifying sight outside her kitchen window. Her German shepherd was shaking the life out of the neighbor's rabbit. So she scrambled outside with a broom and managed to get the dog to drop the now very dead rabbit on the ground and she panicked. She grabbed the rabbit, ran inside, washed it, blow dried it, snuck back into the neighbor's yard and put it back in its cage. They didn't have the greatest of relationships and she knew this might be the final straw. She went back about her business until that fateful scream came a few hours later. And as her blood pressure rose, she wondered what she would say as she walked out on the back deck and said, What's wrong? The neighbor screamed, My rabbit! My rabbit! And as she wondered whether she'd fess up in this moment or what she'd say, as soon as the neighbor caught her breath, she said, My rabbit died two weeks ago, and we buried it in the backyard, and now it's back in our cage. a sigh of relief for Meg, because we all know dead rabbits tend to stay dead. In the ancient world, dead rabbis tend to stay dead too. (laughs) One biblical scholar noted wonderfully that there were many messianic movements in the first century. This was nothing new. Um, And every would-be Messiah met the exact same fate that Jesus did at the hands of the Romans. But in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of disappointed followers claiming that their hero was back. They knew dead rabbis tend to stay dead. And yet what we celebrate today, in fact what we celebrate every single Sunday year after year after year, is something quite the opposite. Jesus Christ was no rabbi. He is the son of the living God, and thanks be to God, he didn't stay dead. And that, my friends, changes everything. But I fear that um, as Christians, we we tidily will affirm that. In fact, we'll even affirm it with our own lips, as we do, at least in this tradition, by resuscitation of the creed week in and week out that jesus christ rose from the dead and that subsequently we as christians look forward to the resurrection on the last day but we see the resurrection as an impact that will happen someday not today we see it as a future event that we hope in and we place our trust in but we don't often connect what the reality of the resurrection means now not just on easter sunday but every day thereafter, as it has down throughout Christendom. So this morning, I'd like for us to dwell on the reality of the resurrection and its impact upon our lives today, not just as a far-off someday event. And so what I'd like for you to do is either follow along on the screens, or if you've got your Bible, um, follow along with me in Luke 24 as we look at this passage that we know well With fresh eyes, and I believe we discover four quick lessons from it about the reality of the resurrection and what it means, what it brings to us in the here and now. This passage opens, as we know, after the Sabbath has passed as the women are headed to the tomb. Mark's gospel tells us that on the evening before, when the Sabbath had ended at sundown, they went to the market and they bought spices. And then the second sleepless, grief-filled night gave way to another morning as they arose well before daybreak to prepare those spices and make them into an ointment according to the law for burial. And off they go. Off they go to the tomb. Now, it's clear in all the Gospels that nowhere is there even a hedging of bets with these women that maybe... Maybe while they've got these ointments together, maybe there's the resurrection awaiting. Maybe something might have changed. No, the only reality they expect to encounter is death. In fact, if there's any doubt, verse 2 reminds us that when they arrive and they see the stone rolled away, it's not like the bells go off and they go, oh, this is what he meant. Quite the opposite. In fact, in verse 4, we see, and Luke captures it quite well, they're perplexed. Added to their perplexity comes two angelic visitors who no doubt complicate this situation even more for them. And I think it's worth pausing as we put ourselves in this story and recognizing that the reality of the resurrection is perplexing. And I think that's that's worth just at least acknowledging in our own lives as well. What God does, what God is doing is quite perplexing. In fact, one biblical scholar noted, and I'll quote here, From the beginning, the gospel is good news, not least because it dares to tell us things we didn't expect. We weren't inclined to believe and couldn't understand. He leaves with this question. Do we expect the gospel would be something obvious? Something we could have dreamed up for ourselves? When God works, not if, when God works... It's perplexing. It truly is. When we've ever encountered God do something, we're, we're perplexed by what he's done. And, and often we're kind of like, wow, I never really thought it'd come about that way. Um, and when we're looking at the brokenness of our own lives and the world around us, it's also perplexing. We wonder how will he redeem and restore this or that. And so we, we kind of get lost in our perplexity. And and there's a moment there where we have a decision that needs to be made, a decision of what we'll do in our perplexity. The women give us a great example. I mean, it's not a a winsome example that they made a conscious decision, but they were paralyzed in their perplexity long enough for it to be worked out in the presence of God. Maybe it's as simple as that. Don't let our perplexity drive us away from God, Um, but God's big enough. In fact, if we could fathom what he's doing, it probably isn't God. I mean, can the finite really comprehend the infinite? And so we do well to kind of just sit, place ourselves in the perplexity of those moments, and let God meet us there and make sense of those things, even if it isn't fully understood. But when we're there, something will happen. And I think there's a a pivot that we see that happens in Scripture here as we turn back Um, to verse 5, as the women are rightly perplexed and are frightened in that moment. Interestingly, we note that the angels don't give them a break. They don't try to console them. They go, why do you seek the living among the dead? You've heard what he said. For weeks leading up to this moment, he's told you about this with increasing clarity, directness, and absolute authority. And no doubt the women believed it. No doubt they even um, looked forward to it. But their framework was no different than ours in a lot of ways. Um, In in an ancient world in the first century, their understanding of the resurrection, which most of them all believed in, was that that would be an end-of-times event. It would be a time when the world would be reckoned, and there would be a resurrection of those who had gone before, and a winnowing of those who were still there. It would be clear, it would be observable, it wouldn't be missed. But no one, no one would have fathomed one person would die, rise again, while the rest of the world turned. And from that one person, from Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, the world didn't just keep on turning, but as we recount in this tradition, throughout the 50 days of Easter, we read the Acts of the Apostles and the way that the world was transformed for the very reason that we sit in these chairs every week. And so the resurrection then reframes reality for them. They have to come to terms with this. They have to make sense of what's happening here. And, and I think therein is something for us to understand. It will flip our entire worldview. The reality of the resurrection is, yes, perplexing, but it squares us up with the reality of what God is doing, not just someday, but in the here and now. And that will reframe our entire worldview. And it should. It'll turn it upside down, inside out. um, And and we have to make sense of that. And when we encounter, not if, but when we encounter the kingdom of God breaking in time and time again, um, we see this reality break forth. In fact, today we're, we're blessed that we have a baptism which reminds us, in big ways and small, right, of what God is doing. Every baptism is a breaking in of the kingdom of God. When one comes up from the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, right, that rose Jesus from the dead, alights and dwells in them so that they might be formed and fashioned in the very image of Jesus. The very image we lost in that garden In the beginning. It's incredible. The resurrection reality is not a someday, but a two-day event. We see it all the time, right? When we actually learn to love as Jesus taught us to love, serving others rather than being served, we see that that's actually a joyful thing. When we do that in our godly friendships and certainly within the bonds of marriage, um, there we see that it's not just what God told us to do, but we actually find joy in it we find fulfillment. The resurrection is not a someday event. It's a, it's a two-day event. It, it, it comes when we forgive. God tells us to forgive. When we actually forgive someone, and that's really hard, we actually find freedom. We find peace. Dare I say it, in, in many cases, just as James tells us, sometimes there's even physical healing that happens because of what our bodies are not just incorporal right? Um, And and the physical and spiritual realm meet, and there something happens. The resurrection is not a someday event, it's a two-day event. We see it as heaven meets earth every week in this tradition at the altar, don't we? Um, As the physical realm touches the heavenly realm in ordinary gifts of bread and wine that are transformed into our spiritual food and fuel, whereby we carry on, and we catch glimpses of restoration not as just people who will be disembodied, but the way in which God will redeem and restore all of creation with us a part of it. The reality is not a, a someday event. It's a, it's a two-day event. And that should reframe our world. It should reframe the way that we live life because of what Jesus has done this day. And it's exciting. It should be exciting. In fact, that's where we pick back up in verse 8, is it not? The women are so excited um, that first they remember these words— Every time that we gather together, the, the sacramental reality of the historic church has always been one of remembrance, not just, just do what Jesus said, but every time we remember and do what Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, it brings the past rushing into presence. Um, every time a child is baptized, the past comes rushing into presence. It's, it's, a, it's a fulfillment of what God does. Again, hard for us to understand, right? I can only go this far because I'm finite. I don't have all the answers either. But I can tell you that God stands outside time and can redeem and renew everything, even time itself. It's incredible when we think about it, right? And so in that moment, as they remember these things, they are excited and they rush to go tell the rest. Now, fun, interesting aside in verse 10. Did you notice Luke's intentional here? Did you notice that... This is the first time these women, the women, are now named. Mary, Joanna, and Mary. Their reality has been reframed. Their perplexity has squared up in that reframing of the reality of the resurrection. And they, in their acclamation of what God has done to the rest of the disciples, is now where their identity is grounded. Isn't that cool? Down throughout Christendom... The names we have are grounded in their identity in stepping into salvation history. The same is no less true today. That's where we find our identity in Christ. And so um, as they go and tell, as they share these things with uh, the rest of the 12 and, and, and the broader bunch, they are excited and they acclaim what God is doing. And I think therein is another reminder for us as well. We are a people of acclamation. In this tradition, um, we've always done that publicly. It's modeled for you. In traditions that have formal liturgies and services, the goal is not just repetition, but so that it gives you a model for what you do in the rest of your life. And we're a people of acclamation. For that reason, no baptism is ever private. It's always a public affair. We acclaim what we see God has done as a household of faith. In fact, weddings, while the reception can be private, a wedding in the church is, is open to the entire church to behold the witness what God has done. In fact, um, every child that was born, according to the older forms of the prayer book, um, you would actually bring the mother and the child as soon as they were able back into the church and acclaim what God had done in the birth of a child, safe childbirth, and a healthy miracle that God has brought forth. We're a people of acclamation. And when we acclaim these things in worship, it's not to just kind of tick the box, but it models to us as we go forth, we should be people of acclamation. We have a story to tell. When we have those moments where God reframes our reality and rocks our world, um, it's not to just go, that was nice. Um, But we have a story to go and tell to others. We have an acclamation to tell. Here's a final point, though, and and perhaps just a wonderful reminder that Luke gives us. So this could have been the high point, right? But Luke tells us in verse 11, it it doesn't end there. In fact, they go back to the 12 and the rest of this merry band, right? And these are not just strangers. They're not knocking on doors, you know, making cold calls to people. These are their friends. And it seems to them, their friends, that this is an idle tale. It seems to them to be fantasy, the thing that you'd expect from weary, grief-laden people who are just hallucinating and hoping for the best. But, but, Luke also gives us in verse 12, their yearning, the women's yearning for everyone around them to hear what God has done stirs a yearning within them, at least as we see emblematic in Peter. And Peter walks that yearning out, racing to the tomb to see what God has done himself. Marvels, he's perplexed. And then that cycle begins again. And so, in many ways, um, if, if you've been around here long enough, I'm, I'm one of alliteration and, 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 and ways that I can remember things, right? So there you go. Your why is to yearn. <laughs> Catch that, right? We pray that, that God would do these things. Um, and, and we pray others would enter into that. So wherever you are this Easter morning, might I just say, if you're perplexed, if all this is just perplexing to you, you're in great company. I mean, that's how it's been all throughout Christendom. But don't stop there. Work it out in the presence of God. Work it out with the household of faith around you. There are those who will help you. And no doubt, no question is too big. There are no golden threads you can pull that will undo the whole thing. Trust me. Trust me. In 2,000 years, it's been written and ink has been spilled and there's nothing you can come up with that has not already been asked. And if you're in that reframe, right, I know this is the case, maybe I've encountered God in some ways, maybe I'm not sure, um, don't, don't just end there. Um, if you have a story to tell, don't just file that away and shove it deep, capture it in some way, tell the story, acclaim it safely to those around you, even if they doubt, they're friendly, right? Um, and, and it begins there, because the call should be that we are people who yearns for the world to encounter the reality of the resurrection, not just... Someday, at their final reckoning, but today. That should be who we are, and so we pray, and we work that out in fear and trembling before our Lord each and every day. We're a people of acclamation, right? And so we acclaim, we give thanks to God this day, the dead rabbis don't stay dead. And we remember, we remember who we are. And for the next 50 days, we acclaim together, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And your response will always be, the Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.